you've come in this morning and didn't get a copy of our notes, please put your hand up. Someone will bring you a copy of our notes so you can follow along and see what we're talking about. Maybe make some notes and some references. If you've got questions, you might like to jot them down as we go through. I always try not to preach on the things that happened just this week. So I'm not going to. Because otherwise you end up preaching things that you end up regretting in a couple of weeks when you find out the truth or that things are much worse. So, but through the week I received a message from a friend of our church uh, through Facebook Messenger. Some of you may have gotten the same message full of terrible woes and dramas and problems happening in the world. And I read this message from this friend and I thought, not sure if that's 100% true and I'm not sure how to respond. I'll just leave that one with God. And about two or three days later, another message came through from the same fellow saying, someone has pointed out to me that everything I said in the previous message was wrong and I'm sorry. I've been spreading rumors and I didn't mean it. He apologized for exaggerating what had happened. Wars and rumors of wars. What we're talking about this morning is Jesus warns us and talks about the dangers of wars, but equally about the dangers of the rumors of wars. We're working our way through the Gospel of Mark and it brings us this morning to chapter 13. But as we've come through the Gospel of Mark, we've had this repeated refrain of Jesus declaring the kingdom of God. His kingdom is coming. His kingdom is near. His kingdom is at hand. And so he says, let's read together. Time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's the gospel message. Repent and believe. And Jesus tells us about what kind of a kingdom it is and what kind of a king he is. And we'll read together Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As we've worked our way through, we come now to Mark chapter 13. And Mark chapter 13 is sometimes called the little apocalypse because a lot of people link it to the book of Revelation. The word revelation is our translation of the Greek word apocalypse. It just means to make something known or uncover it. And so Mark chapter 13 is the little revelation, the little apocalypse. The two books do have similar themes. And their use of vivid imagery to convey some difficult ideas. They both use metaphors. But the gospel is much plainer, less open to interpretation. But people often use the book of Revelation to explain Mark chapter 13. They take the more metaphorical language of Revelation and then they come up with some ideas there and they bring it and import it back here into Mark chapter 13. I want to reverse that. I want us to look here in Mark chapter 13 at the gospel story of Revelation to grapple with it, with these words of Jesus as recorded in Matthew, Mark and Luke and then use what we learn here in the gospels to interpret the book of Revelation, which is where we're heading in a couple of weeks. Some people have been hanging out for these couple of weeks and some of you have been dreading it. Here we go into tinfoil hat land. And it's a short trip, it seems, from studying these things to becoming obsessed with the Illuminati 
and signs of the end of the world and seeing a sinister hand behind every event. That's how conspiracy theories work. Once you become convinced of one truth, it can be so easy to be convinced of the next truth and the next and the next. The next thing you know, you think the world is flat. It's a dangerous path, one that many Christians choose to simply avoid rather than get swept away with the kooks. But there is great value here for us. If we tread carefully, read the chapter as it says it is, and in its context. So, Mark chapter 13. Jesus has been spending the week in the, since the triumphal entry in, in the temple, clearing out the merchants, debating with the religious leaders, and then preaching about their hypocrisies. We read about that in Matthew chapter 23. If you haven't read all of Matthew chapter 23 yet, go and read it. Some great stuff in there. On the way out, his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what wonderful buildings. And it was. It was the biggest building for hundreds of miles, the biggest building most of those people had ever seen. You'd have to go to Egypt to look at the pyramids to see a bigger building. But Jesus says, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. This is upsetting to the disciples who want more information. So they come to Jesus privately. This is not a public sermon that we're about to read in Mark chapter 13. This is a conversation between friends. And it starts with a question. They say, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? So we have two questions here. When and what sign? When will these things happen and what will be the sign? The these things that he's talking about there is clearly the destruction of the temple that Jesus has just mentioned. Jesus just said all these buildings will be knocked down and they want to know when is that going to happen and what will be the sign. And those are the two questions that Jesus is going to answer in chapter 13. When and what sign? about the destruction of the temple, except not quite. As we read through chapter 13, we'll see that Jesus talks about some other things as well, events further into the future. This same teaching happens in Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 21. They cover the same material with some slight differences, Matthew adding a few parables at the end, so he takes an extra chapter to tell the same story. In Mark and Luke's version, they have the same two questions. When will the temple be destroyed and what will be the sign it is about to be destroyed? But Matthew gives us a different question. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, Matthew records the question like this. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? That's the same question as Mark and Luke. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's a different second question. Matthew says the disciples ask about the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So what's going on here? We have some options here. 
option number one. We can decide that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all asking exactly the same thing but just using slightly different words, that the signs are all of the same thing. That is, the sign of the destruction of the temple and the sign of Jesus coming and the end of the age are all the same thing, one event. The temple will be destroyed, Jesus will show up, and the end of the age will occur, one and done. And that's fine, except the temple has been destroyed. Long ago from our perspective, in the year 70, a long time ago, but still in the future when Jesus was talking, and Jesus has not shown up yet in the way that he said he would. So does that mean we have to build the temple again so it can be destroyed again so that Jesus can show up? Some people seem to think that that's the case, which leads to all kinds of very strange politics and ideas. The second option is this is two events. Option two, that Matthew's questions reflect what Jesus was talking about. Jesus is actually talking about separate events. Number one, the destruction of the temple. Number two, his coming of power, his coming in power. And maybe number three, the end of the age. I say maybe because it's possible that two and three are the same thing and happen at the same time. The Gospels don't make that clear, I believe. Either way, those events are still in the future. So for the first time since I've been preaching here at Logan, I'm going to say this. I think Matthew is better. Just here, just in this one verse. I know it's ridiculous, but I do. Mark is my favorite gospel. But if we use Matthew's questions to explain the answers that Jesus gives, we end up in a much clearer place. And that's incredibly helpful. When we read Mark chapter 13, we ought to ask, which of Matthew's questions is Jesus answering here? Which event is he talking about? Because I'm convinced it is option two, that there are two events being talked about here, all of them in Jesus' future as he talks about them, but from our perspective, some of them are in the past and some of them are still to come. And putting things that Jesus talks about in Mark chapter 13 into the right box will help us change how we read this chapter and may just alter our view of the world and the end of the world. Because this chapter is about at least two things, the destruction of the temple and the signs that come before it and the coming of Jesus and the end of the age and the absence of signs that come before that. We'll come back to that in a couple of weeks. Because these next verses from verse 5 to 13 are all about what's going to happen to the disciples and to the early church before the destruction of the temple. Jesus gives his followers some helpful advice for troubled times. They remain good advice for us as well when we face uncertainty and wars and rumors of wars. So Matthew chapter 13 and verse 5. Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. This happened a lot in times between the resurrection of Jesus and the destruction of the temple. Most of the New Testament, most of the letters we have 
are from the leaders of the church reminding the people about the truths of the gospel and telling them to stick to the faith, not to get caught up in all kinds of deceptive thinking and theology. Paul writes to the Galatians, who has bewitched you? There is a danger of deception. False teaching was a big challenge to them, just as it is for us today. Verse 6, many will come in my name claiming I am he and deceive many. With false teaching comes false teachers. More of the New Testament letters deal with the false apostles, the fakes, the charlatans. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that in the years before the destruction of the temple, there were lots of people claiming to be the Messiah, going around, raising armies and gathering followers and going to rise up, we're going to fight the Romans. We need to stick with the Jesus we have, the Jesus of the Gospels. We don't need to invent a new one. Verse 7, he says, When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Josephus and the other historians tell us of wars that happened in the early years of the first century, right up until the destruction of the temple. The Roman Empire was a violent place, always invading their neighbours or putting down rebellions or fighting each other. In the year before the temple was destroyed, in the year 69, the Romans had four emperors. They killed each other. They had civil wars. And because of the way news spread in the first century, no one was ever quite certain what was going on. Stories and rumours would spread weeks and months after the events. It was impossible to know for sure what had happened or why. And it's still impossible today to know what happened or why. Jesus goes on, nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdoms. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. Just as it was with wars and rumours of wars, the same is true of natural events. The way our planet is set up means that we have natural disasters, earthquakes from the shifting tectonic plates and volcanoes where the plates meet and storms and drought. People need to be wise about how and where they build and settle and have plans for when things go wrong. We have a habit in this country of building massive cities on our best farming land. It's not a good idea, but it's too late now. We need to have plans for when things go wrong. And these natural phenomena just happened in the first century just as they happen now in the 21st. Our decisions impact on some of these things, like where we choose to build nuclear power plants and what kind of buildings we build in earthquake zones. We have impact on these things and their severity, and we should work to care for our planet and for each other. But sometimes things happen that are just simply beyond our control. But how we respond is not beyond our control. Jesus goes on. These are the beginning of birth pains. Like the majority of humans, I've never given birth. But I've probably been present for more than the average number of births. So I know a little bit. First off, 
few weeks and months before the baby's born, there are the Braxton Hicks contractions. A few weeks beforehand, as the body starts preparing and practicing, toning up the muscles that will be needed. And every so often, Talia will say, oh, that hurt. And then the real pain starts. And she says, okay, we need to go to the hospital. And then it just gets worse and worse and worse. And then a baby appears. These things, Jesus tells us, the wars, the false messiahs, the earthquakes, are like the initial pains that come early in the birth process. They hurt, but they're nothing compared to what the ultimate experience will be. Terrible as they seem in the moment, they will be considered inconsequential at that moment of crisis. And Jesus says that something similar is coming for the Jewish people. The rumblings of trouble, incidental, background noise, the real pain, the destruction that's coming will be much worse. So Jesus says to these people, you must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you'll stand before the governors and kings as witnesses to them. Before that terrible day, Jesus says, there are going to be plenty of problems for the disciples and for the early church. And we read all about these in the book of Acts. We see people being arrested and interrogated and flogged and beaten for their faith and standing before governors and kings. Paul says in the book of 2 Corinthians, he talks about his own experience. He says, I have been in prison. I have been flogged severely. I have been exposed to death again and again. Five times, he says, I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, which is the legal limit of what they're allowed to give. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. This is the man who wrote most of the New Testament. Jesus says, terrible things are going to happen to his followers. And that's not the end of the world. It's the price of proclaiming the good news. And it's a price that's still being paid today by the persecuted church because the gospel must be preached to all nations. This verse, I believe, is about priority. The first priority for Christians should be to spread the good news. The good news that Jesus, God's son, has died to take away the sin of the world and that everyone who repents and believes will be saved and live with the risen Jesus. That's a powerful truth that needs to be shared and wherever it is shared and embraced, Jesus changes lives for good. Some people read this verse and say, Jesus can't come back until every person has heard the gospel. Other people say, no, no, it's not every individual, but Jesus can't come back until every people group, every language, every culture have had the opportunity to hear the good news. 
I don't agree with those people. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus is saying that all nations must hear the gospel before the temple is destroyed. He isn't talking about the end of the age just yet. We're not up to that. Jesus is still talking about the destruction of the temple. There are scholars who will say that this was fulfilled in the first century. All the nations that the Jewish people knew existed in those times heard the gospel before the temple was destroyed. There's a list of nations throughout the Bible that you find, and as you work your way through the book of Acts and through the New Testament letters, you see Paul ticking them off. I've been to this country, I've been to that country, I've been to every country. Every country they knew existed. They went to and told people about the good news. Whether that's the folks gathered on the day of Pentecost who heard the gospel proclaimed in their own language, whether that's the man from Africa, the Ethiopian in the book of Acts, whether it's Paul and his crew going through Turkey and Greece and on to Rome and his plans to reach Spain. Tradition tells us that the disciple Thomas went to Persia and through to India. The gospel was proclaimed to all of the Mediterranean world that they knew existed. And when they got to the end of the world, they found out there's a bit more beyond that. Of the countries that are listed in the Bible, every single one of them was reached with the gospel before the temple was destroyed in year 70. The gospel is still spreading today. And there are still people who haven't heard the good news, still people who haven't had that opportunity to repent and believe, and it's a priority because the gospel sets people free. But Jesus says in spreading the gospel there will be a cost whenever, whenever, not if, whenever. He's talking to his disciples sitting around him. When you, he looks every one of them in the eye, when you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Again, this happens in the book of Acts. From the stoning of Stephen to the preaching of Paul, Jesus tells his followers not to worry about what to say, but to rely on the Holy Spirit. He knows just what to say and how. This doesn't mean that preachers ought not to prepare for Sundays. It doesn't mean that evangelists ought not to practice their message for the street corner. It doesn't mean that you and I shouldn't practice our testimony. But it does mean we should always remember that rational argument is no substitute for hearing from God directly. Jesus goes on, brother will betray brother to death. He's talking to two sets of brothers. Did you notice that? James and John, Andrew and Simon. He looks at these pairs of brothers and says, in the church, brothers are going to betray brothers. I don't think he's talking about those four, but he's talking about these guys, and they look at each other and go, that would never happen. But it did happen. A father, his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death, and everyone will hate you because of me, Jesus says. The stories of the Christian persecution under the Roman emperors includes stories of people being betrayed by their family members. It wasn't all, no, I am Spartacus. 
Christians were persecuted and arrested, thrown to the lions for the sport of the crowds, and worse. Historians tell us all about Emperor Nero and what he did to the first Christians. If you don't want to sleep for a week, I suggest you go and read some of the histories about Emperor Nero. All of this is happening in the lead up to the destruction of the temple. All of this is happening, Jesus says, as the background to the terrible thing that's about to happen, the destruction of the temple, the devastation of Jerusalem, the end of the Jewish nation. Are there any questions this morning before we conclude? Anything that has stood out to you? Anything that you want to know more about? I'm sure you all have questions. I've just chosen not to share them. Please send me an email. Please send me a text message. I'd love to discuss these things with you. Just like last week when I put on a handbrake in the middle of the highway to talk about the widow's offering, some of the things I'm talking about this morning might be different to what you've heard in church before. And that's okay. We need to look at the scripture in its context and discuss what Jesus is actually saying. The things that Jesus warned his disciples about came true in their lifetimes. And they're also true in our time. We also have wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines. And much of the church is under persecution around the world today. People are fleeing war-torn places and seeking refuge in safe lands. This is half of the course in this sick and sinful world. There is hope. Jesus says, one who stands firm to the end will be saved. He's not talking about earning our salvation. He's talking about having faith taking Jesus at his word and betting our life that he can be trusted. We will face troubles in this world. But let us keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In the midst of everything going on around us, let us sing, In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. And then we will hear his voice saying, Be still and know. I am God. Let's pray. Father God, this morning I pray that you would open our eyes to hear, as Sela said this morning, open our ears to see. Lord God, speak to us this morning from your word. Inspire our hearts and our minds. Father God, help us to hear these words of Jesus again fresh this morning. As he warned and gave advice to his friends, so you speak to us today and give us advice today. Do not be deceived. Stand firm. Do not be troubled. To remind of those words of Jesus, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And Father God, we thank you this morning that the Lord Jesus has overcome the world and we look forward to the day of his return. We look forward to hearing about more of that as we read through Mark chapter 13. Father God, for us this morning, help us not to be dismayed or distraught at the wars and the rumours of wars that we see on the news. 
Father God, we pray this morning for our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world, those who are persecuted, those who are under threat of violence, those who don't know where to turn next. Father God, I thank you that under persecution the good news always spreads and grows and more and more people come to know you, Lord Jesus. Father God, I pray that we would share the good news here in this land of freedom and many and plenty. Help us tell people the wonderful news about Jesus and who he is and what he has done and that he has overcome the world. We pray all this in his precious and powerful name. Amen.